And if you would, open your Bible to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. We are returning to the book of Genesis. Genesis 37 through 50, a series entitled Not Alone. We're going to be looking together at the life of, primarily at the life of Joseph. We've done Genesis in chunks over the last number of years. We did 1 to 11 and 12 to 25 and so on and so forth. And now we come to the end. Genesis is a story. Many people who, when, you th- when they think of the Bible, often think of the Bible as like a book of rules. Here's what you must do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And yet most of the Bible is not rules. Not commands, not prohibitions, but stories. Narrative of God's dealings and as he creates and as there's unfolding dealings between God and mankind. Genesis is a story. But Genesis is a certain kind of story. It's a story of redemption. A story of redemption. God created everything good. Everything was perfect. There were no problems. There were no weeds. There were no wasps. There was nothing broken. There was no sin. There was no divorce. There was no death. He created everything good. But then from Genesis 3, all the way through the end of the Bible to Revelation 21, sin is in the world. Sin has the upper hand. People are sinning against God. People are sinning against one another in so many and varied ways. And on page after page of the Bible, and our own experience bears this out, is sin and Satan seem to have the upper hand. People can't help but be enslaved. And so this, this is the dominant force in creation is sin and Satan. But God, this is a story of redemption, but God is paying the price to buy his people back, to pay their debt of sin and to bring them back into a right relationship with himself. That's redemption. And so Genesis is the beginning of this story of what is God going to do to get his people back to himself. So Genesis is a story. Genesis is a story of redemption. But Genesis is a story of God redeeming a people for his own possession. He's redeeming a people. When Genesis begins, it's talking about creation, and it zooms over creation and over years and years of history at a time, just zooming over it. But then when we get to Genesis 12, Genesis slows down to focus in on God's dealing with Abraham. God reveals himself to this man. He makes promises to this man. He chooses this man, and he says, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. And then God chooses Isaac, but not Ishmael. And then God chooses Jacob, not Esau. And we wonder, 
Oh, did he choose Jacob because Jacob's better than Esau? Like a better choice? Well, as we read through the book of Genesis, we found out not at all. Jacob's name literally means he cheats. And he cheats his father. He cheats his father-in-law. He cheats his brother. But over time, this con man, this, he's not a paragon of virtue. He is a con man He is a sly fox, and yet over time he learns to lean less on his con man ways and lean more on God. And God gives him a new name, Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons, but as we began to see before and as we will see today, they very much carry on the legacy of Mr. Hechi. And so Genesis shocks us. God is redeeming a people, but how can this really be the people he's redeeming? This family. They're one of these dysfunctional families. And yet God is making promises to them. And then they mess up and stumble some more. And God promises some more. And he bears with them some more. See, God didn't choose them because they're perfect He chose them because they were the perfect ones to magnify his grace and his power. This family. You see, the only people God saves are undeserving people. That's the only ones he has to choose from. The only people God transforms are people who cannot transform themselves, which is all he has to choose from. And so we come here now to Genesis 37 to 50, the story of Joseph. This is the longest story in the book of Genesis and likely also the longest story in the entire Bible. This is God working to redeem a people for his own possession. And it is preserved for us this morning. It is preserved for us in Scripture that we might know this God, know his character, that we might walk with him, that we might marvel and praise him on account of what we see about him. So, if you have your Bible open, Genesis 37, let's begin reading in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, My sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers in the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have preserved your word and you've revealed your ways that we might know you. Lord, we do want to be shaped by a relationship with you. We want to be your people, Lord, and we want to walk with you. And Lord, just even the, test, the video testimony we heard this morning, we want to see many others come to know you. Like that young lady, Lord, who had her dreams shattered, that you might make her whole in Jesus Christ. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways, and this passage shows us that, and I I pray this morning, Lord, you would open our hearts to receive from you, Lord, and that you would minister to us this morning. Lord, help us to know you. Help us to walk with you. Help us to marvel and not accuse you. And I pray specifically, Lord, for the the things that we meet with that are evidences of living, of life in a fallen world, Lord, that you would minister to us and give us perspective and help and grace, both, Lord, where this shows up in our own lives, in our own hearts, and those around us. We thank you for just that you are for us and not against us. And I pray that you would minister this morning by your grace. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, Genesis 37 2 uses a familiar phrase these are the generations. It's how the book of Genesis is, is developed, it goes through all of these generations, and we come to Jacob. And we've seen Jacob up to this point at great length, but now we're looking at his family. And no sooner do are we introduced to the member of his family that we learn that this is a dysfunctional family. A dysfunctional family. Some of you would feel, I grew up in a family like this. Some of you may look at others. Some of you may say, I'm in a family like this presently. Well, this is hope for all of us because Scripture introduces us to a dysfunctional family. It begins with Joseph's malice towards his brothers. Verse 2, he's out pasturing the flock with a number of his brothers. And he brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. 
And when we think of this phrase, a bad report, usually we think of like tattling. I don't know if any of you kids have been told or instructed by your parents, don't, don't tattle on your siblings. Um, usually that involves something true that we are saying because we want to get somebody in trouble. But in this case, the word here for bad report means an untrue report. Proverbs uses this phrase as a slanderous report, something that's untrue intended to harm somebody else. Well, that's what Joseph brings. He's lying about his brothers to get them in trouble in order to gain more status. And so there are a lot, and we'll see this, there are a lot of commendable qualities about Joseph. We'll see this in the chapters that follow. But this is where things begin, with a slanderous report of his brothers. And you have to remember, this is God's chosen family. But it's a dysfunctional family on account of Joseph's malice towards his brothers. And it's a dysfunctional family on account of Jacob's favoritism. Jacob's favoritism. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. There's favoritism. You know, when I became a young adult, I would sign cards to my mom, like Mother's Day cards or birthday cards. I would sign it, love your favorite son. And I would give it to my mom. And I remember the one time, the last time I did this, she opened the card and she goes, oh, thank you, Jared. I was like, okay, that totally backfired on me. There's this desire that we might have as children to be our parents' favorite. There's, at times, parents playing favorites with their children. Well, this is what we saw with Jacob. He has a favorite wife, Rachel, over Leah. We saw it, and now he has a favorite son, the oldest son of his wife, Rachel. Playing favorites has always backfired in Genesis, and it's going to backfire here as well. But Jacob, for whatever reason, is still playing favorites. Joseph here is called the son of his old age. That's similar to what Isaac is called of Abraham, the son of his old age, which is not just speaking of the when he had him, but it's speaking of an elevated status. You see, what's happening here is we're introduced to the generations of Jacob and one son is rising to the top. In this culture, the firstborn son would have been the most prominent. He would be the one carrying on the name. But it's not Reuben who's coming to the top. He did some things we saw in the previous chapters to fall out of the good graces of his father. Joseph is coming to the top. Joseph is being treated as though he is the firstborn son, as though he's going to be the one to carry on the name and the promise. We see this in the coat that he's given. Uh, We know this, many of you know this, you've probably colored this in children's ministry. This is the coat of many colors. Um, Another translation you'll see there. Uh, in the footnote is that this is like a royal robe. 
One of David's daughters is the only other person who's mentioned of wearing a coat like this. It's a royal robe King David's daughter wears. And so with ten older brothers, it's not difficult to imagine as their father begins treating him as though he is this elevated son, as he lies about them, it's it's not hard to imagine where this is headed. And so the family dysfunction goes from Jacob's favoritism to the brother's hatred. The brother's hatred. We're told twice that they hated Joseph. They hated him before he ever had his dreams. It says they hated him more after his dreams. And the implication of these dreams that he's getting is that he is going to rule over these brothers. So it's not just his dad who has exalted him. The implication is God has given him these dreams. God says he's my favorite. And the brothers are like, oh no. No, 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 we can't, we can't have this. And so this dysfunctional backdrop then sets us up for verses 12 through 14. In verses 12 through 14, the brothers are now pasturing a flock near Shechem. That's 50 miles to the north of the valley of Hebron. And notice, notice that Joseph was a shepherd before with his brothers in verse 2. He brings the bad report, and now they're shepherding without him. I mean, you just imagine this. uh, One brother in the family is not doing any work while everyone else in the family is doing work. And he's at home with dad, with the coat, in the good graces of dad. And you could just see the the festering that's going on. And we can relate to this. I mean, anytime you see someone not working when you're working, you're like, hey, we we don't get paid to freeload here. And so this is this... This long and and drawn out uh, backdrop in verses 13 through 14, Jacob says, all right, I'm going to send you to go check on your brothers. And here's what he says, that you might bring me word of them. Well, the last time you brought word, it it was a lie. And yet Jacob trusts Joseph. And so he sends him to go check on his brothers. And the point here in this this first part of the passage is God's chosen people are a dysfunctional family. God has promised, made promises through Abraham, promises through Isaac, promises through Jacob that he would bless them and that he would bless all the nations through them. God had promised to Jacob, Genesis 35, 11. He said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. The kings and kings shall come from your own body. Back when we preached through Genesis 35, drew attention to that word company is the New Testament word that we have for church. It's like you're going to have nations and churches of nations coming from you. You see, this is not just the history of one family. This is the history of the family of faith. This is our history. This is church history. 
And it's a humbling history. It's an embarrassing history. Really, this, this is where people who had the promise of God came from? Yes. And it should give us hope, church. God works in dysfunctional families to magnify His grace and His power. God redeems undeserving people and He doesn't give up on them. That's the takeaway from these verses. Ian Duguid, a commentator, Old Testament commentator, he writes of this, he says, Our sin repeatedly chastens us and shows us that God did not choose us because of what wonderful people we are. Far from it. We are profoundly broken and rebellious people who left to ourselves cannot remain faithful to Him for an instant. But our God is a great Savior for great sinners. Like Joseph's brothers and like us, a God who revels in rescuing and redeeming hopeless cases and lost causes and turning them into a united community who together worship Him and sing of His grace, not of their own goodness. You see, there is no boasting about the family of Jacob being such a great family. Now, the flip side of this is we're not meant to come away from this saying, oh, God must be okay with sin. No, He's not. We should never... Minimize sin. Sin is a really big deal, but we're not meant to despair. We're not, we're not meant to live under this cloud because God is an even bigger Savior than the sin that we see in this family. God wants to work in my family. God wants to work in your family. God wants to work in our church family to press home this humbling reality. So Genesis 37 presents a dysfunctional family. And then for the remainder of the chapter, we're presented with what I call painful providence. Painful providence. The word providence is you know, not a word that we use very often. We use like the word luck. We say, oh, that person's lucky or has bad luck. I was driving home from vacation yesterday. Somebody honked next to me, points to the back of the car. I look in the rear view mirror and I see that one of the tires on the bike is gone. I don't know where it went. That was unfortunate. You could say unlucky. But we use those words. Fortunate, lucky. Well, the Bible doesn't use those words. The Bible speaks of God's working behind the scenes. That is his providence. Him orchestrating events. When Jesus walked on water, we say, wow, that's amazing. That's unexpected. That's a miracle. But when the sun rises, we kind of expect the sun to rise each morning. And that's his providence. It's equally miraculous. Hearts beating, lungs working, Light, everything that he upholds by the word of his power, this is his providence where it may not look like God is present, it may not look like God is active, but he is. It's providence. 
Well, this chapter, Genesis 37, it's got 36 verses. God is never mentioned. Nobody refers to God. Nobody talks to God. Moses doesn't write about God. It never mentions God. Instead, the focus is on Jacob and Joseph and his brothers and what's going on on the human level of things. But one of the reasons I've entitled this series in Genesis 37 to 50 is not alone is because there are times where it may seem like God is absent and we have to know he's there. He's present. He's promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And he's present and he's working. And so we we have to, though, look harder to see his providence in these verses. God is the one who gave Jacob these dreams. And God is at work in the unfolding of events that leads Joseph down to Egypt. I don't know if you realize at times how unlikely it is that these things happen the way that they did. And this, this is no mere coincidence or bad luck or any of those types of things. But I mean, just imagine with me, Joseph travels the 50 miles to Shechem. He happens to meet a stranger in Shechem, verse 15. And the stranger ha- happened to ask Joseph, what are you seeking? Verse 15, the stranger happened to hear his brothers, overhear his brothers saying that they were going to Dothan. Verse 17, Reuben happens to talk his brothers out of killing Joseph before he arrives and he succeeds. The Midianite traders happen to come by at just that right moment. Verse 25, Reuben happens to not be there. He wants to rescue Joseph. And given back to his father, he just happened to not be there the moment the Midianite traders came by. Verse 29. And then the brothers, when they used the bloody goat and the robe of many colors, and they bring it back to their father, Jacob buys their lie. He just happened to say, well, he must have been killed. So, I mean, just take all of these. If any of these didn't happen... Joseph wouldn't have ended up in Egypt. This is God's providence. This is God directing. Now, I call it painful providence because it involves sin. It involves hard hearts. It involves a horrible outcome for Joseph. You see, the brother's hatred, it boils over. They want to kill him. And there's this moment with Reuben. It's the only bright spot with Reuben. He sees himself. He's like, I am my brother's keeper. I mean, brother against brother is how Genesis plays out. It's Cain versus Abel. It's it's Isaac and Ishmael. It's Jacob and Esau. And now we have these brothers. And their hearts toward Joseph are so hardened. They throw him in the pit. Verse 25 says... Then they sat down to eat. I mean, how hard, how callous must your heart be to throw your brother in a pit and then leave him be 
It says in chapter 42, Reuben brings up this moment. He says, we heard his cries of distress and we just let him keep crying. And so there's this collective callousness of the brothers. And and we even see this, I mean, when Judah says, hey, maybe we should sell him. He's just thinking about profit. Like, let's make some money and dispose of our brother. It's two birds, one stone. And then they cover up what they did. They kill this goat. They bring the bloody coat to to deceive their father. Get this. Jacob is deceived in the very same way that he deceived his father, Isaac, with a goat and a coat. And so this is God's painful providence. And church, it's moments like this that we can wonder, where did God go? Where did he go? You remember, God's not mentioned in Genesis 37. And when everything's just playing out on the human level in Genesis, it's easy to say, where is God in this? And when things are playing out in your life, in my life, very much on the human level, and there's sin, and there's bitterness, and there's jealousy, and there's power grabs. It could be, where is God in the midst of this? Why, why isn't he stopping it? Why doesn't he intervene? And when Ed preached last week, and he was talking about his older brothers locking him in the bathroom with a wasp, I was thinking of Joseph and his brothers. When they threw you in the pool, it's like, how heartless. Where is God? Perhaps you have your own moments. Where is God? Why doesn't God do something? Well, the answer in Genesis to why doesn't God do something is he is. The very things that we're watching play out with Joseph is God doing something. And it is breathtaking. It's the point of the chapter. God works by painful providence to save and transform an undeserving people. God works by painful providence to save and transform and undeserving people. This is how he's saving them. This is how he's transforming them. In fact, over the next number of weeks, we're going to see God's work not only in Joseph, we're going to see God's work in Reuben. We're going to see God's work in Judah. We're going to see God's work in Jacob. He's got a lot of transforming and saving he wants to do through this. He's working through Joseph And he's working in and through Jacob. And he's working through all of these men as undeserved people. And so we we actually, in order to see God, we have to zoom out from Genesis 37. If we go back to Genesis 15, the Lord had said to Abram, he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. 
God was telling beforehand that this was going to happen. They're going to be servants there. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this is Joseph's great-grandfather getting a promise that God's people are going to be enslaved somewhere. And so for God to bring his people out of that slavery, out of Egypt, he had to bring them first into Egypt. And he did it by betrayal and hatred and jealousy. But years later, kind of getting the big picture, years later, over a decade later, Joseph recognized this. And he said to his brothers in Genesis 45, he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph, I mean, this is an incredible moment, an incredible recognition. Ultimately, God sent me. If there was ever a person who could have played the victim and pointed at others and said, I have had the raw deal of my life, it was Joseph. He could have said, Dad, what were you thinking? making me your favorite, giving me that coat that was just a big target on my back. He could have pointed and blamed his brothers and played the victim with them. But over and over again, he rejects victimhood in favor of seeing, I see the hand of God. It wasn't you who sent me here. Ultimately, it was God. And it brings such comfort. This is the whole not alone theme. It gives so much comfort to know that we are in the hands of a mighty God. God is not the author of sin, church. Each person is sins as we are tempted by our own desires. But Joseph ended up in Egypt rather than back in Hebron or dead in Dothan because God sent him there as a, as a part of his plan to save and transform a people. He's working in this dysfunctional family. And this work of God by painful providence that we see with Joseph Church, fast forward, fast forward to Jesus Christ. That's where we see God's painful providence providence on full display. God, why would you do this? If anybody could have played the victim and pointed at the Jews and pointed at the Romans and pointed all around and said, it's everybody else's fault. It was Jesus. But he came. He knew who had sent them there. him there. That's his favorite phrase in the book of John is the one who sent me. 
the one who sent me. I've been sent here. I have a mission. I'm accomplishing something. We hear it in echo form with Joseph, but it's so much bigger on the lips of Jesus. He is here to die for sinners in order to save and transform an undeserving people. God has a people. And so it's not the Jews and their rejection of Jesus that gets the ultimate cause. It's not the Romans and Pilate and the soldiers. Ultimately, Jesus was on the cross to fulfill the plan and purposes of his Father. And he was in total agreement. Total agreement that that was what he was going to do. God used something he hated to accomplish something glorious. Something he loved. He used the death of his son on the cross to bring about a great salvation. And so the answer to the question, why doesn't God do something, is that he did. He sent his son for us and for our salvation so that we could be made right with God now and forever. He is still doing something. He is still saving and he is still transforming people through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there is no amount, church, no amount of sin, no amount of dysfunction, no amount of hatred, no amount of jealousy, no amount of crucifixion that are a match for God's power. And God's grace. This is the God we serve. God works by painful providence to save and transform an undeserving people. If I can invite the worship team to return. Church, we need chapters like this. So that we might recognize that God has not left the building. Uh, William Cooper, the hymn writer, he wrote a hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Yes, he does. He moves in a mysterious way. And the second line of that hymn says, Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Yes, he does. And so William Cooper wrote for his own soul and he wrote for the good of ours, Take courage, saints. Take courage when you and I see the painful providence of God. Let us not accuse him. Let us trust him. Let us zoom out from what's going on on the human level and see the God who is over all. Now, we may not necessarily understand exactly what he's up to in a given moment, but we're told his ways aren't just different than our ways. We're told that his ways are higher than our ways. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. His ways are higher. He works by painful providence to save 
and transform an undeserving people. And I am so glad that this is the case. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are over all, that everything exists for you, Lord, including the things that break our hearts. Lord, thank you, not just for showing up after the fact and cleaning up the Joseph situation and cleaning up our lives. Lord, thank you for plotting for our good to save us, to transform us, Lord. And the things that we, even in this moment, may be going through in our lives, Lord, that we can trust you, that we can rely on you. Help us to do that, to take courage and to fix our hope this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.